Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, when is a good time to bring a goalkeeper on for a penalty shootout? We'll review the EFL Cup final. We'll also talk about Chelsea's future under Roman Abramovich. Marcelo Bielsa's been sacked by Leeds. Will they stay up this season? And also, what is handball anymore? Have we completely lost track of the rules? This is The Game. Hello again, welcome back to the Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wisencroft, alongside Alison Rudd, James Restall and Tom Clark. We have to start at Wembley this week, where there was a pretty fantastic EFL Cup final. Even though there were no goals scored, it was Chelsea nil, Liverpool nil after extra time. 11 penalties each in the shootout, and it was Liverpool who won it after a decisive miss from Kepper in the Chelsea goal. And we've got to start there because it was the big talking point. We're going to work in reverse, I think, on this one. Kepper was brought on right at the end of extra time for Edumendi, who had a great game in the Chelsea goal. And hindsight, obviously, is a wonderful thing because it was a Kepper's penalty that went sky high and landed, I think, in, in Watford about half an hour later on. James, I'm going to start with you on this. The decision to bring on Kepper, I, I don't want to overanalyze because if it works, you're a genius. It didn't work and it looked like a massive mistake. The only thing that I'd say is Kepper didn't really look like he wanted to come on. And they kept showing him on the bench in the final few minutes. He wasn't warming up. He wasn't limbering up. He, was, he just put his gloves on and walked on. And I knew at that point in time, Liverpool were going to win. Three years ago, Hugh, he refused to come off. So he might as well have refused to come on this time. And I think it might have been a bit better. In defence of Thomas Tuchel and the gamble, he did it in the UEFA Super Cup. So, and it worked. So I can see why he did it. I can also see it's a uh, it's a nice way of rewarding the keeper who has uh, who's played well for you throughout the tournament and giving him his his moment, um, whilst also um, rewarding your number one who, um, who, who, who's had a fantastic season. I think where it falls down is that, and I've seen people talking about this this morning, which I think is really, really interesting. When you've got a player like Mendy, who's had such a good game and has been impenetrable, it's going to give the opposition a psychological lift when you take him off and you put someone else on who 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 is you know this is not being unfair to Kepa but is regarded as not as good a goalkeeper as Mendy. I think the Liverpool the Liverpool players probably would have got a bit of a psychological lift ahead of that shootout. I think um, Paul Joyce wrote very interestingly in his analysis from Wembley this morning uh, in the piece that's in the paper this morning and online right now saying that. It was kind of interesting the way the managers, both managers, um, their approaches to the goalkeepers. You know, Jurgen Klopp said, sort of on a human level, football is football's both sort of tactical and human, and the human side of Klopp won. And I picked Keller, who'd been my man throughout the tournament, and I rewarded him, and he carried that performance all the way through. Whereas I think Tuchel ended up paying the price for being a bit too clever. Um, you know, it had had Kepper started the full match um, 
Uh, I mean, he he was brilliant in that um, in the uh, in the in the Club World Cup semi final match that he played in. Made some really good saves, and um, against against an opponent that Chelsea should have been beating quite comfortably. Really, he, um, he he ended up having to make two or three really crucial saves to to keep them in the game. So I could totally have understood if Tuchel had picked Kepper from the start. I think you're always, even though that gamble can come off, we've seen it in the past, World Cup in 2014 with um, Tim Krull, sometimes works, doesn't it? But it's it, you're, you're introducing more of an unknown and more of a gamble into quite a high-pressure cup final situation. Um, so uh, so I think um, it, it was a mistake, but, you know, they sometimes come off. Alison, what did you make of the decision from uh, Thomas Tuchel? I mean, is James right? Did the love of Klopp triumph over the sensibilities of Tuchel? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, James has put his finger on it. There was a lack of emotional intelligence from Tuchel on this one because he, he failed to see there's a huge difference to uh, springing Kepper as a surprise in a game where everyone would expect Mendy to start and for Mendy to play well. And then you do that clever thing where you bring on a specialist keeper for spot kicks. That seems clever and you've done your analysis. You've got your stats to back that decision up. And there's no way that the keeper in question, in this case, Kepper, can't but feel boosted by the fact his manager wants to put him on for a period of the match. Fantastic. In this case, there was no element of surprise Everybody in the universe knew that the minute Mendy was put on the team sheet, ah, okay, he's doing that, is he? So he's reminding the world that Kepper isn't very good at all, but he will be coming on for the shootout, which all that can do is make Kepper feel under triple the amount of pressure he would have ever felt in his life before. He played well in penalty shootouts in this competition. There were two that I were at. I assume there were the only two, but the two penalty shootouts in the competition but he played the whole game. It was a completely different scenario for him. I agree with James. He didn't look particularly happy about coming on in that situation. Instead of having nothing to lose, which he had beforehand when he'd done this, he had everything to lose. He spent the whole match knowing the whole world knew this was going to happen. And that, that almost as if it was a fait accompli, that if there was a penalty shootout, he would be the better keeper. And he's proven not to have that sort of personality where he can cope with that sort of pressure. I think he struggled with the pressure of being the world's most expensive goalkeeper and it's just more pressure on his shoulders. And I just feel there was a disconnect there between Tuchel understanding the dynamics of that situation and deciding to go for his, you know, his stats men's analysis of it. And and he called it wrong. The guys make some really interesting points about psychology and mentality and pressure and things, but I find it all incredibly frustrating that we're having this debate and this conversation. And this is me putting my goalkeeper's union hat on again. And I find in modern football, it's slightly bizarre and absurd that we're in a position where goalkeepers shouldn't even be taking penalties if they don't want to. It's just, it's completely bizarre that we have a tournament that the idea is that it builds up to the pinnacle of a cup final between the two best teams. And we have got two of the best teams, two modern teams, two modern great teams. And it was a great final, loads of chances created, two goalkeepers making great saves during the game. And then you have a penalty shootout, which fine, people have their issues with, but there's some great penalties. And then it's decided by a player whose job is not to take penalties, not to score goals, not even to be out of the pitch. And we've all had a conversation now about 
Kepa coming on. He wasn't brought on to take a penalty. He was brought on to save penalties. And we've not even met, if we want to debate about, oh, who would have saved more penalties, Mendy or Kepa, then that's great. Let's have that conversation. But his job as a goalkeeper is not to come on and miss or take or score that final penalty. I mean, surely there needs to be some kind of, I, I, I just don't understand it. You know, we've had it with De Gea for Manchester United in the Europa, Europa League final as well. Lots of modern goalkeepers are great with their feet. I'm sure Edison, if it had got to that, would take a penalty for Manchester City before the 11th penalty. But I mean, I don't get, I just, I just find it infuriating slightly to have watched that game and now to be in a position where we're talking about goalkeepers, which is such a specialised position that they own, you know, it's a unique position in football. And yet we're talking about his role taking a penalty when actually we should be analysing you know, his role in whether he was any good at saving them. If we want to have that debate, great. I'd love to have that debate because I, I thought I thought the moment he the moment that shootout was lost was the penalty that Van Dyke took where Kepper was was to his right and he was and he, and he and he deliberately stood to the right of the goal and 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 Van Dyke went, All right, I'll put it there and see if you save it. And he and he and he and it almost went through his arms. And I th- I thought at that point psychologically Kepa was out of the game because because at that point it, it was almost a mirror image to me of the one three years ago where I can't it might have been Aguero took the penalty that went straight under his body he got he got it right he dived he dived in exactly the right way but the ball squirmed under him and it was like you know you've already got the pressure of being the kind of the the person that we're all focusing on, not just because you're the goalkeeper saving the penalties, but because you're in a kind of strange, unique match situation in which in the first example, he was, no, I'm the man going to save these penalties, keep me on the pitch. And this this time um, being thrown into the fray by the manager to be the, you know, the match winner. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a really there's a guy called Gear Jordet who, who's a who's a um, uh, an academic who studies penalty shootouts um, he, uh, from Norway and he, he's he's done some really interesting analysis over the years some of which we've we've covered in the Times on the kind of psychology and the science behind taking penalties and you know you, people can agree and disagree can you really look at penalty shootouts this forensically and I think there, there's a couple of really interesting things one is that in the Euro final when Rashford and Sancho were thrown on in the last minute to take penalties in the shootout. He argued that that puts such a huge burden on those two players. They might be the right age range of, you know, the average age of players that score penalties, and they might have an amazing penalty record among the England squad. But to take two players who played very little part up to that point in the tournament and say, your job is to go on and win the tournament is a massive burden. And I think that was the same with Kepper here. He's watched the player who, as, as Alison says, and, and we would probably all agree, is, is regarded as the better goalkeeper, make a string of brilliant saves to keep the team, his team in the final and get them to that point. And Kepper's going on and being told, now win the final. And, this, and, and, the, and the second point from this, and, and um, I was reading um, Gear's Twitter this morning, and he's already, he's already done some analysis on this, on this shootout. And one thing that's fascinating is he's timed the run-ups of all the players. And I think it's something like there is an average of about 2.6 seconds wait time is the optimum time for when the whistle blows. You wait and then you take your kick. You compose yourself. Keppers, unsurprisingly, and I know, we're, you know, I, I know we shouldn't be analysing his... His, his his ability of taking a penalty. But I think it's significant here. His run-up was, from the whistle going, there was 0.4 seconds between him hearing the whistle and taking the kick. By that point, I think he was 
I think psychologically he was broken at that point, and I think he just wanted wanted it done, and, and that and that was it. And I think that, but but the, but the moment was first of all the pressure of him coming on in that in that for, for for that for that decisive shootout, and then the way Van Dyke expertly played him. I think those were the two key moments for me. And not to overanalyze things, then. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, the only thing that I would say is um, I cannot believe. I know Tom, you're saying that maybe goalkeepers shouldn't be involved in taking penalties in the shootout. You've got to hit the target in that circumstance. I mean, you no one, you no one expects you to score. There is no, all you have to do is hit it hard and low. That's it. No one, if it gets saved, it gets saved hard and low. Make sure it's on target. That's it. That's it. That's all you have to do. Kepa has that in his locker. Surely. You can say that, but also as a Manchester United fan, you'll remember David De Gea's penalty and some of the things James said there about not looking like he wanted to take it, getting it over quickly, seeming like he's, you know, I'm going to miss this. Because there were apologists like you out there who say, oh, you're a goalkeeper, you don't have because to score. Because they are a goalkeeper. They are a goalkeeper. They've got a it's specific football. job. All right, well, they shouldn't fine. take goal kicks with their feet either, though. No? I tell you what, if they score then for the next round of penalties, every outfield player has to go in goal and try and save a penalty. It's absolutely bollocks that we get to the point of a cup final. There are outfield players who who are crap at penalties who can't take them either. So yeah, what should it just be like? If you're a decent of, penalty taker, you're allowed in the shootout. I'm just if you're a rubbish about, penalty taker... Hugh, you're the, you're the guy who argues about football for entertainment, right? Is that what you're getting at? Because I'm talking about football as like an elite sport who wants the best of the best. And that cup final was great. We saw some great football. And then you have a guy who is not... It's literally not his job to kick a ball outfield, outside the penalty box. Yeah, fine. Keepers are good with their feet these days, etc., etc. But they're also still a bit crap with their feet. As proved by Edouard Mendy booting the ball straight to a Liverpool midfielder halfway through the game and nearly conceding a goal. The pressure and the focus that is put on goalkeepers in a negative way, penalty shootouts are supposed to be their moment where it's on them and then you have it completely flipped on its head and they're supposed to be taking a penalty. It's, it's absurd. It's absolutely perverse. Should we make it so they don't take them in the shootouts? Should they change that rule and just say it's just the 10 No, I, I think Tom wants them to be able to throw it in. So use your hands, just stand no, on the penalty spot. No, I don't. No, you're being ridiculous now. <laughs> I just don't want them to take a penalty because I just don't think it's, I don't think it's, you know, the idea of a football final being decided in that manner. I think it's ridiculous. And it also takes away from goalkeepers their chance to be the stars because you're literally going, right, well, you've had a chance to do what you're supposed to do, which is save shots. Now do something that you're not supposed to do. You're never trained to do. Maybe you've never done in a professional game before ever. The one thing I would say is that it did show what an evenly matched and thrilling final it was that it has to be decided in that way because, because like they are, you had, you had, you had all the disallowed goals. You had, you know, both teams attacking in in equal measure. Um, It was like the two teams basically just cancelled each other out. So it it kind of felt to me slightly fitting that, um, you know, it was one of of those ones when you're in the, when you're in the office and you're, and you're editing the, the, the the football pullout and you're thinking, what are you going to put on the cover of the pullout? And the, the game was so evenly matched. There were so many different things that could have gone on the cover of that throughout the 120 plus minutes that, Actually, it's kind of like, you know, it felt, it felt, you know, the story was the goalkeepers. The story, the story ended up being the goalkeepers. And it felt like it was a, you know, it was a fitting way to end up deciding that final because it, there was nothing else to separate the two teams. It was also Kepa's first kick of the match, the most decisive kick of the first domestic trophy is decided by someone who has not actually kicked the ball, which is faintly ridiculous. 
I, I, listen, I see what all of you are saying. It was a brilliant game. You can tell from a journalistic perspective, we actually celebrate what goes on the front cover of the pullout instead of the actual football, because that's how we're programmed. But it was a brilliant match, Alison. Did you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, I did, actually, because it, it is a Mickey Mouse Cup. So the, the stakes weren't too high. I was, I was, you know, it, it matters in terms of the narrative of what's to come next. And that sounds so arrogant. And every Liverpool fan who says that sounds awful saying it, but it does feel like winning this trophy is a signal that, oh, we'll probably win another one. And, oh, there's another one we could win. Oh, in the Premier League, well, why not? So it feels it feels um, quadruple-esque in that sense. In itself, it's not that important and that allowed it to be an enjoyable final. The atmosphere was incredible. Um, there are some uh, League Cup finals where you just sense the people who are there don't want to be there, including the fans. But this felt um, like a proper, let's go for it. Uh, it mattered that there were two very good teams playing against each other. Those sort of mismatched finals at this for this competition are never very good. So it was properly competitive without too much angst because it is only the League Cup final and it's the bottom of the list of things you want to win if you're a, um, a club as size of Liverpool. And the, I, I mean, James has summed it up. The important, the crucial thing was that, and everyone was talking about it, you know, when the game kicked off. Oh, isn't it interesting that, that Klopp stuck with his number two keeper as a huge, you know, in, in a humanistic reward sense. Well, it was, but that's what people were talking about before it even got to the shootout. Oh, and, um, you know, we've got Tuchel being far more cyber-like, you know, Borg-like. He's just doing the right thing statistically. And, um, it, it, you know, the humanistic approach won in the, won in the end. It, well, no, but back to your original question. It was enjoyable and it, well, it was slightly surreal because I don't think I've watched a big match, have so many offsides where I've just... I've just put my hand in the end. I, I shrugged and said, I don't know. I don't know why that's I don't know why that's offside. They're not letting us look at it very closely. Really? Was it? For all of them. I mean, they were all so narrow. It was, um, I don't know. Okay, someone somewhere's got a ruler, but I couldn't see. I just couldn't. I couldn't see. I couldn't see them. I'm adding that to my list of football reforms for this morning, Hugh. Goalkeepers don't have to take penalties in a shootout and kick Liverpool out of the Carabao Cup for that answer from Alison Rudd. Straight out. <laughs> Get him out. I was, Get him do, you know out. do you know what? I was, I, was, uh, I, I, I was looking at my clock and seeing 10.38. So we're 38 minutes into the podcast and we've had the first mention of quadruple. God. Disgusting. No, 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 no. I deliberately said, I said, exactly. I said quadruple-esque for a, okay. a, a, okay. a reason. I said that we for know a reason, James. We I said know that what for a reason, James. We know what you meant. Said it for a reason. There's a part of me that thinks Chelsea just deserved to win. I know it was two very evenly matched teams, but on another day, they score more goals than Liverpool in that game. Surely. I mean, on a, I mean you're talking about these tight offsides which were just in Chelsea's favour, if you like, more for them than there were for Liverpool. I actually thought the Van Dyke offside was obstruction. It yeah. wasn't the biggest block in the world, but it was quite a deliberate off-the-training-ground set-piece move that was designed for Van Dyke to block Reese James and have a free p- person on the back post. And look, if they all got give, if they all were allowed, 
then I think it would have been a better game. I thought we would have had more drama. We probably would have had a different winner. So maybe in that regard, it was an advert for um, getting rid of VAR and offsides and going back to football as it was. But I actually think Chelsea played really well, James. Yeah, they, they absolutely did. And um, and they, they looked, I think I think what was interesting was they, they did a very good job to silence Mo Salah. Um, and and I, and I didn't think he was anywhere near as effective as he has been um, this season. Uh, and 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 Chelsea just looked um, really really threatening, particularly with the pace in behind of, of when Werner came on and, and and Lukaku. I mean, I did I did wonder whether they should have started with Werner and Lukaku. But that said, I mean Mason Mount, if Mason Mount, Mason Mount had had three brilliant chances that he should have finished. Um, you know, there were there were it did feel like the game was more in. I agree with you, Hugh. I think I think the game was more in Chelsea's favour. Um, but I sort of think as well. I quite I I just I just quite liked the fact that kind of it felt like a sort of it it, it felt like a, a watching a thriller and twist with with these twists and turns of of, of of VAR actually I think providing quite good drama. And I, I I'm not I've never been a massive fan of of. Of VAR, but I did actually think in in this respect it felt like a sort of strangely modern drama. In that, you know, we were having the Lukaku one. I thought the Lukaku one was onside, but with the na- with the naked eye at the time, I thought, oh, he's, that's he's got that. The guy's foot's just in front, and it was like, you know, and it, but it, but it almost felt kind of inevitable that it was going to get disallowed at that point of the match. And actually, and, and that actually made me, you know, I, I'm a complete neutral in this situation, and I just, I, I just want to be entertained with these matches. Um, and so I would, so, so I, so I found it quite funny, and thought it was just added to the whole narrative of the match. But I appreciate that other people probably don't watch and enjoy football that way. You know, um, you know, I support a team that's um, scored two goals in their last 13 matches. So, um, you know, I'm looking for entertainment wherever it comes. <laughs> um, listen, in terms of that entertainment, the Chelsea forward line was the other thing I wanted to discuss because Kai Havertz played well, really well. But I actually think Chelsea were more threatening when Romelu Lukaku came off the bench and maybe Timo Werner coming off the bench at the same time added to that. Um, but the front three of Mount, Pulisic and Havertz, for me, didn't, it didn't feel like the Liverpool defence were as worried as Werner, Lukaku and Havertz, who I think by that stage was, was pretty tired as well. And um, I just wondered whether there is a way of getting Lukaku back into this team that maybe includes both Havertz and Lukaku together. What do you think, Dom? There could be, certainly. I mean, I was reflecting on our discussions before the final, and I think we were talking about whether to start Lukaku, and I said, you know, leave him on the bench and maybe bring him on. And when when he scored that goal that I thought, like James was onside, I thought, yes, nailed it. Get the clip ready. I said, <laughs> bring it. I said, bring him on and score the winner. Brilliant. But yeah, he looked really threatening. And also, briefly going back to the penalties, fair play. He stepped up early in the shootout and scored for a guy who's been under pressure um, and had the spotlight on him. That showed a lot of character. I, I'm not sure how. I don't know whether you're kind of talking about a modern, almost the big man, small man with Lukaku and Havertz as a front front line because you're not going to get the whole flick downs for run-ons type thing in a kind of traditional front two from the 90s. But yeah, I, I would have thought there's some way of them playing together. I just think whatever it is with Lukaku, he needs, we've talked about it before, he needs to form some kind of relationship on the pitch with one of at least one of those of the forwards to play off, to play around like he did with Martinez at Inter Milan, um, like he did previously at at other clubs where he's been successful. He can't just have this kind of rotating cast around him because otherwise the the only other way to get anything from him is as an impact player from the bench, which when you've spent that much money on him, you want more than that. What do you think, James? 
I was actually um, while 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 Tom was talking there, I was just trying to get up a little table that um, I asked for from our friends at Opta the other day, uh, which um, which which kind of showed who has been passing to Romelu Lukaku and who's been creating chances for him in the uh, in the in the matches in which um, in the matches in which he's played. Yes, here we go. So, so chances created for Lukaku: six from Mason Mount, five from Matteo Kovacic. Four from Marcus Alonso, three from Antonio Rudiger, two from Callum Hudson Odoi, none from Kai Havertz, despite them playing four hundred and thirteen minutes together. Um, this was from this was uh, six days ago, so pretty accurate. Any other players? Uh, Ziek, no chances created for him. Werner hasn't played very much with him, but no chances created for him. Um, uh, it, what's really interesting is it does seem to bear out the fact that he's missing Reese James a bit as well, and, he, and, and the the um, the fullbacks kind of have been the best players in creating for him. And since those since those two injuries to Chilwell and uh, and James, it seemed a bit um, it seemed like there's been less less uh, chance creation for Lukaku. Alison, finally on this, we'll talk about Chelsea a little bit later on in terms of what's going on away from the football pitch. But on Thomas Tuchel losing this final. Is it is it a moment of significance for him? He's already won the Club World Cup this season. If he ends the season without any other trophies, do you think he'll stay as the Chelsea boss? I don't think this trophy would have mattered one way or the other. This is not... I mean, Chelsea are a club that sack managers who just won the Champions League. It's not. That's not how it operates. It's about... Yes, it's about success, but it's also about the club feeling that the relationship's there between the manager and the players and that everyone's buying into it, that the players are happy, that they're working harder with each successive match. I don't think it'll be relevant at all to his future that this match was lost unless it creates a sense of uh, disquiet amongst the players about how he treated the keeper situation and whether they feel he got that wrong, whether there is anything behind the scenes, people saying, oh, we would have rather he'd started. We, we felt, you know, we got that incorrect. Um, that's that's when it goes wrong for Chelsea managers, when when he when the manager loses the dressing room. I'm not saying this defeat in itself will mean he's lost the dressing room at all. I'm just saying it's not of itself relevant at all. What might be more relevant is whether he feels comfortable as a club that's in the spotlight for the wrong reasons because of the war in Ukraine. That isn't what he signed up to do, is it? To be the public face of a an asset that's owned by a Russian. So, um, no, it, th- this this final has no relevance at all. And they can go back to wearing their little gold badge now, which they're allowed to do. So that's nice for them. <laughs> uh, there you go, uh, Alison Rudd. Enjoying the game at Wembley yesterday ends with Liverpool winning the first domestic trophy of the season. Uh, more still to come on the game podcast. Remember, if you're enjoying it, uh, rate us, leave us a review. Make sure you're subscribed. We'll be talking about Leeds United. We'll take a look at the Premier League games this weekend, as well as discussing events regarding Russia and FIFA. Stay with us. FIFA has told Russia to complete their upcoming games in neutral territory under the name of the Football Union of Russia without their flag or their anthem following their invasion of Ukraine. Now, there hasn't been a ban on Russia from international competition as yet. There are no sanctions on Belarus either who are being used to help support 
the Russian invasion. Uh, joining us on the game podcast, our chief sports reporter, Martin Ziegler. Martin, loads of criticism for FIFA and Gianni Infantino over this. Why so spineless from them? That's a very good question. I mean, the, the FIFA president, Gianni Infantino, he's a recipient of the Order of Friendship Medal from, from Russia in 2019. That may well have something to do with it. Um, if you, th- you think how many pictures we saw of him and Vladimir Putin cozying up to each other during the 2018 World Cup, so I think that's definitely a factor. I think they were just hoping that they would be able to sort of like bury their heads in the sand and it was all going to go away and then come up with this idea of playing on neutral territory, which is a sort of, uh, under this neutral banner, which we've seen as a sort of doping ban. And that there was an, uh, elicited a, a, a furious response from Poland, Sweden, Czech Republic, who just said, look, we're not going to play Russia anyway. So um, that, that battered the ball firmly back into FIFA's court. Yeah, several nations, including England, at any level, say they won't be playing against uh, Russia. Wales as well, as you mentioned, Poland, the Czech Republic, Sweden. The World Cup 2022 playoffs would have seen Russia face Poland before either the Czech Republic or Sweden, which is why those nations are involved. That's still scheduled to be played in March. Martin, do you think Russia should immediately be banned from World Cup qualifying? I think I think FIFA has to do that and just say that... Um, Due to the situation, they can no longer take part. The Russia are due to play in England in the European Women's Championships in the summer. I think um, I know that UEFA is going to be holding a, an executive committee meeting in the next couple of days where they're going to assess that and also make a decision on almost certainly to terminate their Gazprom sponsorship. So I, I think the governing bodies have to sort of grasp the nettle and um, take these sort of in some ways, difficult decisions. In some ways, very easy decisions. Ah, you mentioned Gazprom, one of those major figures we see at halftime during Champions League matches. A wonderful animated cartoon there, but maybe not the same sort of joy when it comes to their business dealings. Is it all to do with the commerciality, the links between some of these major Russian organisations, which you can, I guess, talk about why they ever got involved in football and what that means on the wider geopolitical scale, but is it because of those relationships that FIFA maybe hasn't gone in as hard as they could have? Possibly, but I mean, UEFA have—they've they, got a massive sponsorship deal with Gazprom, and they, they've gone in pretty hard. They've stripped the final from St. Petersburg, changed it to Paris. Um, they, the, the chief executive of Gazprom sits on UEFA's executive committee, so there are those those close links there. But they've—they've they, been able to take these tough decisions. I think with FIFA. They are, they are probably deeper, those links, and it probably stems back to the World Cup and hosting the World Cup and the relationships that were built then. Alison, what do you think of, of the reaction of FIFA? Well, if it wasn't so serious, I'd be laughing, to be quite honest. I mean, are we, are we, it's, it's, I mean, as it stands now, we're in a situation where I think we can put money on Russia winning the next World Cup because no one's going to play them. So they're, they're de facto winners of the World Cup. Is that the situation they expect? I mean, it's so naive to say, you know, hopefully, you know, things will improve. Uh, do they not watch the news, read the papers? Do they not? I mean, do they not know what's happening? It's it's um, it's not just spineless. It's sort of lacking any any moral cohesion. Um, very distressing. And even if they do, because they can't possibly have a situation where Russia are the winners of the World Cup because no one will play them, they do make the right decision. And Martin's indicated they'll probably will move towards making the right decision. They, they, Because they prevaricated for reasons of being compromised by relationships, I just don't see how 
anyone in power at FIFA can can maintain that role of responsibility. They they sh- they ought to have lost any sense of authority in the in the eyes of anyone who loves the sport. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that's been said so far. Really, um, I, I think it's. I thought it was quite a ludicrous statement last night saying, you know, we haven't ruled out kicking them out but we'll just take another couple of days just to see if um if the war continues and it's just it's just it's just a kind of it's just it's just really really weak and i think the i think sort of the last month including the winter olympics has just shown up kind of how weak the ioc and uh, and fifa have been really and it's quite depressing i mean i think there's a very there's a very simple solution for the for the World Cup in that I think um, um, Martin will probably um, correct me, but you could easily just promote one of the sort of lucky loser teams like Hungary, I guess, who are the next ranked team and get them to play Poland. And it's quite an easy fix. You know, if they're if they're seriously worried about what they do about the World Cup, it just sort of shows a real lack of perspective, really. Look, it was it was in, in some ways I wasn't surprised by it last night because I don't think you know, sporting um, governing bodies don't always seem to show great leadership, but um, it, it's it it, it it is it is it is what it is, and I can all I can hope now is that FIFA do kind of make the right decision today or in a couple of days' time. I wanted to ask Martin because you you're spent so much of your time on IOC decisions. Uh, are you baffled, Martin, that there seems to be a deliberate correlation between the way? The IOC deals with drug issues and the way FIFA is dealing with a war issue. I mean, there is no, there is to me, there's no parallel at all. And yet they seem to be deliberately going down that path of mimicking what the IOC have done. And it's quite easy, I think, when you're talking about uh, an athlete who's completely clean and you don't want them to suffer because another athlete took drugs and whether or not that was state sponsored or not, that you're trying to be fair to someone who's devoted themselves to their sport this is not i don't i do not see the correlation do they think we're stupid they try to do what they think is the acceptable minimum basically so that you know there'll be a judgment call in the in the swiss swiss corridors of power and they think well if we do this you know then we can will it show that we're being tough and the public will accept it um and then we won't, and we won't hurt the Russians too much. Uh, I, I think that must be the, the, the basis on how these decisions operate. Um, and then they get it spectacularly wrong, and then they uh, have to face the repercussions. I thought the timing of the FA's statement was really interesting, coming out as it did, sort of almost. I think it was like less than an hour before FIFA's statement, and and I thought it was quite quite good of the FA to get their position out there that, that, that England at any level won't play Russian teams, almost like it was in, in, in anticipation of the fact that FIFA might not go the whole way. And um, I, I just think that it is ludicrous, you know, that, that if FIFA genuinely, what neutral venue would, would how many neutral venues would actually host Russia in this in this uh, in this current climate, where would be the venue that they would find? Uh, Beijing. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 and, uh, and how many how many Polish, Swedish, or Czech players would get on the plane to play that match? <laughs> it's yeah. ludicrous. There aren't just issues on the global international scale of things with FIFA either. We should talk about how it affects, in particular, one of our big clubs, um, Chelsea's Russian owner Roman Abramovich says he's giving trustees of Chelsea's charitable foundation the stewardship and care of the club. He, of course, remains the club's sole owner. Uh, in a statement at the weekend, he said, 
I have always taken decisions with the club's best interest at heart. I remain committed to these values. That is why I am today giving trustees of Chelsea's charitable charitable foundation, the stewardship and care of Chelsea FC. I believe that currently they are in the best position to look after the interests of the club, players, staff and fans. Uh, He didn't make mention of the Russian invasion in his statement, though Chelsea did come out to say they... Um, support Ukrainians um, about, what, 12, 14 hours later, something like that, having been widely criticised, of course, for their initial statement. Now, there were reports yesterday, weren't there, Martin, that several of these trustees are very uncomfortable um, with this, given that they were given zero advance notice and they are now considering their position. Interestingly for me, this came just before an announcement from the UK government that sanctions could see... If, we're, if assets were frozen of oligarchs like uh, Roman Abramovich and they were left out of the swift global financial transaction system, that could definitely affect how Chelsea operate. How much of, of all of that is linked? Yeah, I'm sure it's, a, it's a, 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 a tactic by Abramovich to get himself away from the, 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 the threat of sanctions, which I, I, you know, clearly he's, he's very worried about it and the people who work for him are very worried about it. The only thing about this Jewish, giving the stewardship of the club to the trustees is nobody actually knows what that means, not even the stewards, as far as I can make out. It doesn't actually seem to mean anything. The, the club is still going to be run by the executives who are there. Does that mean a brand which isn't going to have, have phone calls with them? Or what we, we you know, it, it, it's unclear. There's, there's nothing in terms of um, directorships changing. You know, as far as I can tell, he's still going to be the person with significant control. So, yeah, I I think it's an effort to try and avoid something that may be coming down the line. What does it mean? I suppose the Chelsea fans will want to know what it will mean for their club if Abramovich has his his UK businesses frozen. Do you have an idea? Well, one thing it definitely will mean is that he can't give any more money to the club. So, I mean, he's in all the... Two, best part of two decades he's been there. He's put in £1.5 billion. Pounds and, and last year, I think it was around £20 million he put in. And that sort of that covers their cash losses. And it can be up to £70 million pounds a year. So a, a, lot, a large amount of money. So if he's not able to do that because he's not able to trade with, with British companies or or have business contacts with them, that, that's that's an immediate effect. We have seen MPs like Chris Bryant saying that actually the British government should seize the assets and should seize Chelsea completely. And then that then puts a question mark about, um, you know, will it continue to operate? I think the government wouldn't want, I think it wouldn't want to sort of um, hurt the Chelsea fans by closing the club down, but it, they could certainly um, hurt its operation. I think this would be huge, I think, for English football if that were to happen. I wonder if that transfer of stewardship would... I, mean, I know you, sent, you said that it, it means basically nothing, but if that does create some kind of buffer, is that just the hope of Abramovich? The thing that I've, I've been pondering is whether there could be a forced sale. So not necessarily that the UK government seizes Chelsea as an asset, but that, as has happened in other countries, a forced sale might happen. And we've been hearing rumours that several new new ownership groups... I had a, a friend that works in the city who says that he believes that there are several banks that are putting together consortiums, if you like, that will make bids for Chelsea. Would Abramovich be keen to sell? Depends if he can get his money out. <laughs> I don't think he'd be keen to sell if he, if he thinks that this money is going to be frozen in, the, in a British bank account forever. So um, I think he probably won't be keen to sell. 
But and the other thing is, people think, well, this might be an opportunity to get Chelsea for a knockdown price because you know, are they somebody going to pay? I mean, he'll want at least his money back, which is at least one point five billion pounds. Is somebody willing going to be willing to pay that? There's all. There's also for any potential buyer. There's there's the cost of upgrading Stamford Bridge, which if 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 they wanted to do that, will be another billion on top of it. It's it's going to take a very wealthy individual or group of individuals to uh to, to to force a sale of Chelsea at the price that I think Abramovich would want and then to then do what you know to do what is necessary to um to keep Chelsea at the top of English football. The other question that I had was I think we all supported the idea that international football associations wouldn't play against Russia given their invasion. But if Abramovich is sanctioned by the UK government and if a link is proven between him and Vladimir Putin, do we think clubs in the Premier League will continue to play against Chelsea or will they take a similar stance to what the international bodies have? What do you think, James? I think that it becomes a very... I mean, I, I personally, no. I, I think I think the teams will... I think the Premier League will continue as, as, it, as it does because, you know, not wanting to... I mean, it's a, it's a very, very legally sensitive question, that. I mean, but, I, but equally, you think you're then taking... You'd have to take a moral judgment on every owner of every football club. And I think, you know, I, I just think... I think you, you, I just think that's unrealistic. I think... We'd have no games, yeah, basically. Well, not that we'd have no games, <laughs> but I think it opens a very... That opens up a Pandora's box. And I think actually... Yeah, I think, I think, I think that that's just... I just can't see a situation in in which, yeah, that was that was going to happen. Um, no, it is more complicated because there is evidence that Abramovich has gone to great lengths to distance himself from Putin and is fearful of him. And is certainly he's not someone who's saying hooray for war, is he? It's not it's not as clear cut morally for someone at another club to decide they can't possibly step into Stamford Bridge from now on. All right. I mean, aside from this, we did see, I think, some positive signs. Um, we saw banners. We saw flags in the Premier League. We saw support for Ukrainian players uh, this weekend, uh, notably Alexander Zinchenko, Mikolenko of, of Everton uh, in an embrace, a big conversation, but the support of their teammates as well. We saw something at Manchester United, uh, the game between them and Watford as well, and pretty much every single ground as well. And I think that at least do West Ham United too, Andre Yarmolenko shirt being held up in the warm-up um, shirts with his name and number on the back too. I think that the at least the support that football shows for Ukraine could be an important part of, of the recovery, in particular putting pressure on the UK government to maybe change its visa policy. And I know this goes away from, from football to be more accepting than it currently is, Alison. Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. It, it, it is part and parcel of the pressure being put on the government, uh, along with just the general population laughing out loud at the Home Office, putting out a, a wordle in the Ukraine colours and thinking, well, that'll help them, uh, but not not being very slow to open our borders to refugees from there or anyone who, who, who might feel the need to come to Britain for whatever reason. I mean, it's we're, we're, the, our country has been... Sp- amongst the slowest to respond and I I do personally feel a certain distance from it all when I see footage of the protests in Berlin and Prague with thousands upon thousands of people taking to the streets to show solidarity 
we're not at that stage here, but I do think some of the um, football's allowed to show these poignant things and for fans to bring flags and to applaud players with links to Ukraine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But if that, if that is the most high profile element of the British response on some level, that's a little bit embarrassing. Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, Martin Ziegler, thank you for joining us on the Game Podcast. I get the feeling there's going to be more on this in the coming days and weeks, um, so I'm sure we'll speak again, but appreciate it. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Well, there was a bit of sad news in the Premier League this weekend, even for the neutral fans. I mean, what a legend Marcelo Bielsa is. And he's been like a breath of fresh air. But finally, Leeds United have sacked him after a poor run of games which saw them concede 20 goals in their past five matches. Bielsa appointed in June of 2018. He leaves Leeds two points above the relegation zone, having finished ninth last season on their return to the Premier League after a 16-year absence. Beaten 4-0 by Spurs at home on Saturday. Their chairman, Andrea Radrizzani, said, uh, with Marcelo as our head coach, we had three incredible campaigns. And the good times returned to Ellen Road. He changed the culture of the club and brought a winning mentality 
to us all. But he's made that decision uh, with their Premier League status in doubt, and he believes it's the best thing for the club moving forward. The former RB Leipzig coach, Jesse Marsh, uh, is the overwhelming favourite to replace him. Um, Alison, was it the right decision to sack Marcelo Bielsa? Yes, although I don't think... It does appear that the fans really wouldn't have minded if they'd been relegated with him at the helm. Such was the cult of personality he held over them, uh, which is really rare, isn't it? I can't think of anything comparable, to be quite honest. But I, I don't take a terribly romantic view when it comes to these things. Um, one reason I was unhappy when... Brendan Rodgers was appointed Liverpool manager was that I didn't like the way when he was Swansea manager, he would suffer a heavy or at least very comprehensive defeat and beam away and say, well, it, it didn't matter because his principles were still working and he liked the way they were playing. And my view is, well, you're not employed to show off. You're employed to get points and you're in to to win games and for the team to rise up the table. And I did feel with Bielsa, it stopped being about the obvious, which is you are being paid a salary to, at the very minimum, maintain Premier League status, but you're putting your principles first. I doubt, for all the wonderful things that have been said about Bielsa, I don't think you can be a truly great manager if you're incapable of adapting and knowing and, and indeed understanding that, that, that your methods are exhausting and that if your squad isn't huge and you have a few injuries, it will suffer terribly because of your high energy game. Um, and it seemed so blinkered that um, I, I don't think there was any choice but to get rid because that's not why you employ somebody. I mean, are, do you, I mean, unless they really were employing him for the romance of it, but clearly they weren't. And that's why they sacked him. So I'm not... I'm not surprised, and I think it was the right thing to do. It probably should have happened sooner. Tom Clark, is romance dead? <laughs> who knows? I, I just echoing Alison's point about Leeds fans. Rick Broadbent, who um, is a Leeds fan as well as one of our writers, wrote um, a very impassioned piece about Bielsa uh, before the weekend, before the defeat against Tottenham, um, arguing that you know the club owes him a great deal and that he should be allowed to see it end how he sees fit, basically, whether that means relegation or not. And interestingly, Rick's points were echoed very much in the comments by Times readers. And we ran a reader poll as well. And 80% of readers said that Bielsa should decide the future, not the club. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's unique in that sense, because to answer your question that you put to Alison, I guess it can be the right decision to sack him and also the wrong one in a strange way. It's probably one of the only managerial situations where that's the case, probably because of a combination of factors, the cult of Bielsa and also the club, the size of Leeds and what he did for them before this. But when you come back to the cold hard realities, they want to stay in the Premier League. What I would say, echoing what I said on Thursday in the defence of Bielsa, is that whether it's Jesse Marsh or someone else, they're still inheriting a club that it's not necessarily very easy to change change it in those ways that Alison identified and that you on Thursday were talking about, Hugh. They've still got quite a weak squad. They're still a squad missing their two best players. Their defence is still largely a defence of what I would say is top-level championship defenders. So whether it's Jesse Marsh or someone else, they face a hell of a task to try and turn Leeds around at the minute because they are in a bit of freefall. So... We've talked about Leeds a lot this season, and I think the one thing that perhaps the cult of Bielsa has done 
the only thing that it's done in terms of being a detriment to the club is that it's not brought any kind of clear planning to the club once they got to the Premier League. He got them to the Premier League and it was amazing. And then they had that mad first season in the Premier League and he signed another contract. But since then, there was never a clear idea of what the next thing was. And now you've ended up in this position where they've sacked him quite late in the season. They're in free fall and whoever they're bringing in has got a hell of a job on to turn them around. It's, um, it's, it is really sad. I think there is no real, real room for romance in the Premier League. Um, you know, Leeds United, and it is, it's, it's really, it is a real shame because you look at those, those brilliant scenes yesterday of Leeds fans going and getting their last autographs with Bielsa. Um, I can't really remember, certainly in the modern era, a, another manager who had such a connection with the people in the town where the, where the football club, um, you know, there was such a connection between the manager and the, and the fans. And I think it was really interesting, I think, as well, that kind of um, the lockdown period sort of has come in between this. And so they've not, you know, the, 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 the great season that Leeds had in the, the, the first really entertaining season, the fans were no part of that. And so I think that's almost kind of, um, I think that's probably enhanced the, the fans' feeling towards Bielsa in that there's probably a feeling of that they really desperately want to see it work this season because this is the this is the season where they actually get to be in the ground. Um, I, I do. I, I think looking at Leeds as a as a as a business, and I hate to describe football clubs as businesses, but it's 2022. Um, they've just had a, another significant investment from the San Francisco 49ers. They are a club that want to be looking at being top half Premier League and certainly in, in the in the immediate future they want to be challenging for you know Europa League places that that's where they see themselves as a club and that's the direction of travel they see themselves going in so being in a relegation battle was not in the plan and I know that I know I know then at the same time you can say well how can you have that kind of a plan and then a manager who will only sign one year contracts at the end of each season um, it, it, there, there's something quite incompatible there and I think that's that's ultimately the problem. I also just looking to to Jesse Marsh. I think um, first of all, I'm going to make the terrible pun, but I'm going to preempt the announcement video. Surely it's going to say "marching on to marching on together," isn't it? That's, that's, that's what they're going to say, isn't it? That's that's how they're going to that's that's what they're going to do. So one, they're getting a manager who they can brand. Second thing, um, second thing is that uh, looking at some of his results against English clubs. Uh, lost four three in a thrilling roller coaster game against Liverpool in the Champions League with uh, with Salzburg. Uh, lost six three in a thrilling roller coaster game with Leipzig against uh, Manchester City. So I mean, you're getting Bielsa's replacement right there. Um, you know, um, entertaining, um, thrilling end to end plucky defeats. Um, is that what Leeds need right now? No. Is it what the fans want? Is it what the Premier League wants and what the neutral wants? Very much yes. Um, it's uh, uh, the, the the sadly um, sadly I don't know and I'm sure Hugh will have a view on this. Um, he's a uh, he's a disciple of of Ralph Rangnick, so we could probably expect to see some players not do four two 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 very well and get some draws. So that might mean that might mean the points to keep them up. Who knows? What I was on a very serious point, having not been very serious for the last thirty seconds I've been talking. This is a guy with a with a this is a guy with a clear tactical vision and philosophy. And if 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 what Leeds have shown us over the last few years is that these players are incredibly willing and incredibly adaptable um, to a manager's vision and a manager's philosophy, and if he can if he can use what time he's got to drill these players in the way that he 
wants them to play, I think they could adapt far more quickly than the Manchester United players to, to Ralph Rangnick, for example, have, with the Manchester United players having sort of, you know, not really needed to, to kind of... They're lazy. You yeah. can say it, James. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, no, mate, I'd let mate. you... I, I, was, I, was, I was prevaricating <laughs> enough so that you would say it. But, um, but you know, these. Um, the, the last thing I will say, though, is, and this is probably from me being a bit lazy, is that... Um, if I was a Leeds player going into training this morning, I'd be thinking, oh, good, I don't have to do murder ball today. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I can only expect that if the announcement comes tomorrow, which is the 1st of March, that there will probably oh, be yes. a pun on that instead. Yeah, so, you know, it's bad timing for your pun, but probably more likely mine. I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. The listeners should just know that it says a lot about James's enthusiasm for puns and headlines that he genuinely punched the air when Hugh pointed out that it was the 1st of March tomorrow. Um <laughs> But but quickly, just back to some of the points James was making there, because it made me reflect on the kind of cult of Bielsa. I think one of the things that comes back to this idea that it being the right decision and the wrong decision is that for a club like Leeds, who for so long had so much kind of toxicity around the club and the ownership and the decisions that were made, Bielsa changed all of that as well as getting them promoted. James was making half jokingly and half seriously some very good points about Jesse March and is this the right appointment at the right time? If they go down now, having sacked Bielsa, that then puts them in a very interesting and potentially difficult position, particularly for the owners and for the people in charge of the club, because you've got rid of the modern day hero, the guy who saved the city and the club, and you've been relegated. So Yes, we'll be all saying football's a business. It was the right decision. It was brutal. It was cutthroat, but they stayed up. They got some better tactics and a bit more order. But if they go down, that will be far, far worse than other teams who change managers during the season and then go down. This was the right decision. Even if they go down, it will still be the right decision. You cannot have an organization that's beholden to one person's views, run top to bottom by that person. We've seen it at the biggest clubs in world football. Hugh, you were a Man United fan. What are you on about? You're a Man exactly. United fan, run by Sir Alex Ferguson for 20 years. What are you on about? You can't happened, be beholden. And what happened as soon as he left? The entire place fell apart because <laughs> one individual, no, seriously, one individual held it all together. You cannot run an organization like that. I get it. They needed an individual like that to get them into the Premier League. Now they're in the big time. You need structures in place throughout your organization, and you also need the ability to evolve. Now that means you need multiple ideas from multiple people. You need good people in several, three, four, if not, you know, at some clubs, it's up to a dozen really good people in various areas of the club to make sure you're all going in the right direction and in the right way. And if you leave it down to Marcelo Bielsa and his staff who signed one-year contracts, you're not going to evolve. You also don't, there's no wiggle room here. There's no long-term plan. So why should Marcelo Bielsa evolve? You do it his way and ultimately he walks out the door at the end of the season if it fails. You cannot work like that. Leeds should have been changing the way that they played for weeks. The fact that they didn't underlined it. They they done they'd made a big mistake here. You cannot just keep conceding three, four, five goals every single game and expect that the the club is gonna go somewhere. I just didn't get it. And I know they've had a certain style of play, and late Leeds fans will say this is what got us here. When it's working, brilliant. But as soon as something's not working, it doesn't matter what you do, it's a lunacy to continue to to fail again and again. Come on. This was definitely the right decision. I don't know if Jesse Marsh is particularly going to be particularly going to be the right decision if he comes in because 
again, I always say that I think you need to control football matches. You need to have an element of possession in the Premier League to get through games um, without being under real pressure, without being really tired towards the end of games. And I, I think that basically Jesse Marsh will continue this at Leeds. I think they're going to run themselves into the ground by the end of the season. And Tom, that word you mentioned, and yes, I'm going to keep on with you for the rest of the season with it. Burnout will be that big word that returns. Tom said it first. Just, you know, direct your tweets at him. Tom said it first. I'm just picking up on his point, okay? That could cost Leeds at the end of the season. Alison. Jesse March is also a disciple of Bob Bradley. And look how that worked when he took over <laughs> at Swansea. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be too hopeful. Finally on Leeds, though, what what went wrong? Because I know we can talk about the personality of Bielsa and his um, decision not to change, really, and, and that's ultimately what, what it came down to for me. But he chose to have a small squad at Leeds and they were impacted severely by injuries and Calvin Phillips and Patrick Bamford chiefly amongst them. Is he unlucky with how this season went? Does anyone feel that way? Well, no, I've already, yes. I've already said. I've already said that that, that, that is the... Inherently, what's wrong with this system? If you if you if you have a a plan, if if the way you work is to demand so much from your players and you can't absorb injuries, then then it's the fault of the manager because there's no he didn't change it when 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 circumstances cried out for him to play differently, he didn't. That that's what went wrong. You you you, you if you have a very personalized strict system that's clearly identifiable as you know it's just different to the rest of the not hugely different but it is different to the rest of the league you have to put all the pieces in place for it to be able to work I mean is, was he was he was he thick did he think none of my players will get injured I mean you have to have backup scenarios and ways of working which allow you to absorb a tiredness and b injuries and well, he just blindly carried on as though those things didn't matter. They, I mean, they were an embarrassment by by the end of his tenure. I it really, I, I know people love him, but it's ma- it's a mad way to manage a football club. He was definitely unlucky. I argued that on Thursday's show. I think, yeah, it's incredibly difficult. And I think also making the point that you have a small squad. You know, they, they, they're a team down the bottom of the table. They don't necessarily have the finances to bring in new players. We also applaud managers when they're particularly pointed on saying, no, I want this type of player. I want these kind of players. I won't pay over the odds for this type of player. So, yeah, look, he was incredibly unlucky, I think. But I think regardless, he will be well-remembered. And even if Leeds go down, I think that'll be the case. They, um, the, the recruitment they have done hasn't been great though I think as well I think that, I think that's part of the part of the problem is that they're kind of they're, I was talking to Rick about this um, when he wrote his last piece on Leeds it, it, there's that kind of danger of when you're shopping around the sort of 20 million market it's very hit and miss um, Rick um, Rick was one of what was interesting Rick was we, we, we talked about Bournemouth and, and how when Bournemouth went down they signed a lot of 20 25 million pound players that were really kind of a lot of them didn't really do much at all um, in terms of keeping Bournemouth competitive and in the Premier League. And I think, you know, I, I, not wanting to single out anyone particularly, but Rodrigo's not been amazing. Um, and you've got Dan, you know, Dan James has taken a while to get going. And, and inter- you know, he, he did an interview with us um, last week and he actually said that it was kind of, he felt that he was kind of playing within himself at Manchester United. Um, partly because of the just the sort of when you move to such a huge club, it's it's it, 
the, the pressure is, is so great and it, and it kind of made him play within himself a little bit. And it's only just now that he's started to kind of feel like he's the kind of the exciting, dynamic player that he was when he left Swansea. But I think you you kind of need, when you've got such a small squad, you need all your signings to work or the vast majority of them to work. Otherwise, um, you're going to be, you're going to regardless of the system, regardless of, of of um of of you know luck with injuries whatever you you need everyone to work and to be successful otherwise you 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 can't be successful they were pretty much played off the park i know they had several good chances leads but um ended up with a 4-0 defeat at spurs in a word will they stay up having sacked marcelo bielsa i think no and i only say that because of the fact that um newcastle and burnley seem to have found form at the right time um I think, and 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 I also, you, you just can't count out what Roy Hodgson might do with Watford, and and I just I think it's it's all about momentum and form at this time of the season now, and Leeds, unless unless Marsh can go in and turn things around very very quickly, they are already on that kind of downward spiral where they are shipping so many goals. Um, uh, one thing that made me really uh, made me really laugh. I can't remember which newspaper it was. I was reading on um, on on Sunday, but um, they kind of did a, an analysis of like the relegation battle and kind of the teams and points and whatever. And Newcastle, by virtue of beating Brentford, were actually no longer in their list of teams that were in the kind of relegation um, bottom five. And it was like, and it's like that's you know that 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 kind of shows just how mad and fluid it's been down there. In that you know that that couple of good results takes you out of the picture completely, few bad results, you go straight back in there and Leeds are in there now. Everton are certainly by no means in, out of the woods. It's, um, I think Everton probably will stay up. And, and I think that's the, I think, and I, and, I, and I have a sneaking suspicion Burnley might stay up as well. So I think, I think, um, I do think Leeds are in a bit of trouble. That's a very long way, that's a very long-winded way of saying, I think they're going down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, get us back on track, Tom. In a word, a Leeds staying up. Yes, Okay, we're going to wait and see what happens. Um, Listen, there's a little bit left on the game podcast. We're going to take a quick look back at what happened in the Premier League this weekend. Stay with us. Right, to end the game podcast this week, let's take a look at events in the Premier League this weekend. Manchester City now six points clear at the top with Liverpool playing at Wembley, of course. They beat Everton by a goal to nil, but they could and probably should have conceded a late penalty. Was it handball? By Rodri. Tom? Over to you, Hugh. I, I found myself sat on my sofa completely befuddled and like all modern journalists, what did I do? I went on Twitter to find the answers because that's that's where you go for football rule books these days. <laughs> and there was one man there ready to answer all of our questions. He had all the answers and it was Hugh Wozencraft. So o- over to you, Hugh. Was it a penalty? I blame... Football fans and pundits, I blame you all. I stood alone and told you two seasons ago when everyone was complaining about accidental handballs leading to goals, that they had to be handballs because you can't, in the build-up to a goal, use your hand to score. Why? Because it's football, okay? It is football and you should need to use your feet. But everyone said, no, that's not fair. He didn't mean to handball it. It's okay. He can control the ball with his arm and set up a goal for someone else. And that's okay. And what happened? They changed the rules. They messed about with handball. What have we seen this season? Duncan Watmore for Middlesbrough against Man United. 
it's handball. It hits his hand. He wouldn't have had the ball otherwise. He sets up a goal. That is handball. Okay, it should have been handball. I didn't change the rules. You guys wanted this, okay? Craig Dawson's goal against Leicester. People were actually messaging me, arguing about hitting a deltoid instead of a bicep. What have we become, people? (laughs) What have we become, okay? It's handball. It goes in off his arm. It's handball. We should have all known that. But no, you wanted a grey area. You created a grey area. And this is it, my friends, because that ball hit Rodri just on the sleeve yes majority bicep i will admit it god it it almost looks like it hit his arm but no that small area of sleeve that touched that the ball touched on rodri's arm means that there was enough enough doubt that var actually came back and said it's not clear and obvious you wanted this don't even have a go at me don't at me i don't want to hear it you chose this and anyone out there screaming it was handball we all know what handball is no not anymore we used to and so you wanted goals scored using arms this is on you not me i'm very pleased i asked that question because you weren't quite that passionate on twitter on saturday night but (laughs) the point the point that you were making and what i think you're getting at is that whilst it's frustrating what you're saying is that it was the correct decision no by the letter of the law in my opinion a small part of the ball, you could clearly see the ripples on his shirt. And if people are telling me that it, if it hits a portion of the shirt, because I argued that Craig Dawson had handballed it when he scored against Leicester, and people told me, no, it hits his shirt. Well, okay, well, then it hit a little bit of Rodri's shirt. So there you go, it can't be handball. Are you allowed to wear a long sleeve shirt in the Premier League these days? Because it's been really convenient that since this rule came in, I don't think I've ever seen anyone wear a long sleeve shirt. And like, you know, in the 90s, people always used to wear long sleeve shirts. Um, and, 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 you know, you can then you can then roll it up and down to change the different area of where the book, you know, I, I, but I haven't seen it. And I wonder if that is genuinely, a, you know, we've just we've, we've been kit manufacturers have been told, you know, we've now we've now um, we've now changed the rule book to the dimensions of a football shirt. So, you know, I'd be keen to know that if anyone, um, anyone. No, sleeves, sleeves are definitely off. sleeves definitely look a little bit longer. But um, stylistically, players wear um, un- undershirts, don't they, that are a different colour, so yeah. you can determine the, where the T-shirt line is. But I would take issue with you when you said the ball hit Rodri because he, he handled the ball. It was a deliberate handball. And we've now got to a situation where deliberate handball... Ah, but even is that not, is debatable. No, no, a deliberate even handball that is, is not penalised and completely debatable. random. I, there's not nothing you can do about it. It's penalised. That's where it's gone wrong. I think it was debatable. This is what VAR has created. This is what you, the fans, you, the pundits, have wanted. You, you, you've seen you've seen the ball hit arms, and you've said, "No, he didn't mean it. No, no, he didn't mean it." So, in that case, the rules were changed, and now all of a sudden we have to we have to sit here and pour over whether a player meant to handball it or not. Did he? I don't know. I don't know. I can't read his thoughts, Alison. I no, would I'm have not said. saying it was no, um, very few handballs are premeditated, but there's a way of controlling the ball with your arm and it just hitting your arm. And you used the phrase hit his arm and it wasn't that category of handball. It was the category of he controlled it. Well, I think, Hugh, you're quite rightly saying that we're pouring over something that you said the new rules say that it, it probably wasn't a penalty. So so I'm, I'm taking over as host for this section and I'm continuing to do so. And let's let's change let's change topic. It was an it was a fascinating game, wasn't it? Let's be honest. Do we think Everton are now showing the steel to stay up? City, Hugh, you said it on the last show. You were winding me and Alison up only a week ago saying we said City 
not going to drop any more points. Yeah, they picked up three. They didn't look strong. It's an in- Listen, I watched that game and once again I said, no one, uh, this, is a, this is a hill I'm prepared to die on, okay? No one is going to convince me that Manchester City don't need a striker. Pep Guardiola could, could give me a, a lecture for an hour. He could not convince me that they do not need someone who has that sort of gravitas in the penalty box who can imprint themselves on a game in a goal-scoring fashion. Because with all due respect, Phil Foden, you know, he poached a goal and that was great for him. But ultimately, they were getting towards the penalty box and there was no real direction for Manchester City. And that is why they laboured to score a goal against Everton, who have been struggling so much. And yeah, you can say Everton played quite well, but I'm sorry, Manchester City are on a different level to them and should be at least scoring um, a little bit more easily. Very fortunate goal in the end. Slight ricochet on the pass into the box. Michael Keane on his heels. And in the end, Phil Foden snipes a goal. But honestly, I don't think Manchester City can carry on like this. So they have to go out in the summer and buy a player. But you know what I thought ultimately? I still thought they deserved to win. They played all the football. They dominated the game. And those people out there who, yeah, deep down inside hate Manchester City, you wanted Liverpool to win the league. You wanted it to be a penalty because you don't like Manchester City. Admit it. In fact, I think most people will admit it. But um, but ultimately, I, I don't think Everton deserved a point out of the game. Manchester City got a slice of luck over the course of the season. Yes, I'm going to say this over the course of, season, of the season. If Manchester City deserve to win the league, they will win it. Okay, I'm just going to say it. Even if it comes down to a point, there will be luck both ways. Am I right, Alison? That will be the best Everton play between now and the end of the season. So they're doomed. OK, we'll see what happens with Everton um, between now and the end of the season. A few clubs in trouble, including Brentford. I know you went to see them this weekend, Alison. And finally, Christian Eriksen back on a football pitch. 259 days after suffering cardiac arrest, uh, playing for Denmark against Finland at Euro 2020 back in June. What was that moment like? You were there to witness it. Oh, I felt very privileged to be there, Hugh. Uh, it was very beautiful. He had his entire family watching in the stands, including, and there were doctors that treated him watching him. Even his mother-in-law was there. It was, um, it did feel a privilege and players on both teams, you could see it meant a lot to them. The officials, it meant something to them. He's very calm and cool about it. Anyway, but what matters is that he came on and he looked rather like the Christian Eriksen we all know. Uh, he was demanding the ball. He was playing some nice stuff. Uh, it was his first competitive game since his cardiac arrest. So he's not, you know, he's not going to be amazing yet. But I do feel, if you think about it, Brentford have the lowest wage bill in the Premier League. We expected them to struggle. They've made a signing that you would, under normal circumstances, never expect a team in the bottom half to make. They have to be bolshy about it. They have to start preening. They have to start acting like a team that think, ha-ha, even Newcastle, with all your newfound wealth, you haven't signed a player of Christian Eriksen's calibre. We have got what it takes to stay up. They have to believe it for it to happen, I think. But I do I do think he fits in well there. There's enough running and energy and intelligent football for him to make a difference. And... It's only really, 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 really top-notch fairy tale if they do stay up now with him helping them, isn't it? One specific question: Did you cry? No, no. Very because, strange. Because no, mm. I didn't cry. I didn't cry 
because it's been a good news story for so long and we knew it was going to happen. Um, I mean, I felt, I felt very happy. I didn't feel emotional. I just felt very happy for him. And it was just, given all that's happening in the world, it just felt like a beautiful, poignant moment of where everyone's on the, you know, everyone's on the right side and everyone felt goodwill towards him. And it felt a slight miracle. And we don't see many of those. Oh, what a lovely way to end the podcast, Alison Rudd. Thank you very much. A special moment at the Brentford Community Stadium. One little piece of trivia. Hold on to this one for your pub quizzes. What was significant, James, about the substitution? What was significant about the substitution? Oh, uh, no, no idea. And, and as, a, as, a, as a self-professed stato, I'm, de- I'm really disappointed. I'm you've absolutely you've ruined, ruined James's day there, Hugh. No, you've, <laughs> you've, you've, you've asked, you've asked James Restall a quiz question that he doesn't know the answer to about football. And James actually very kindly has joined us on his day off, so you've ruined his day off there. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm done. See you later, guys. <laughs> Christian Eriksen came onto the pitch for Matthias Jensen, who is the player who replaced him after he had his cardiac arrest against Finland in the game at Euro 2020. So full circle for Christian Eriksen. Great to see him back in the Premier League. Thank you all for listening. Thank you uh, to Martin Ziegler, James Restall, Alison Rudd and Tom Clark as well. And uh, listen, if you enjoyed the game podcast, you can subscribe. Um, You can also get more of our award-winning journalism from The Times and The Sunday Times. If you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. So check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We will see you on Thursday. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.